Hello, and welcome to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett, and I want to welcome a very special guest today, but before I do so, I want to you know, give a bit of a preamble as to what this program is about. It's called The Soul of Business for a reason. Um, everything on this planet, literally, I believe everything in this universe is created out of a source. You know, there's a, there's a spark, there's a spirit, there's a soul that informs what we are and what we have and what we touch and what we see in this universe. And what we see is what we, you know, in, in what we call reality. And the soul of business is no exception. Business has a soul. It's been my experience in the last 40 years of my work in businesses as a consultant and as a coach and as a business entrepreneur myself, that far too often businesses lose connection to that soul. And the consequences of that are pretty dramatic and pretty uh, uh, consequential, if I could use that word, in a negative sense. Uh, the soul speaks to something that is connected, and all of life is connected. I grew up on a farm, and one of my biggest teachers uh, growing up on the farm was nature. And just noticing how everything was interdependent and how one thing happening or something happening to one area on the farm had consequences systemically on you know, the rest of the, the farm, you know, whether it was the, uh, the animals that we were working with or the crops that we were growing, whatever it was, it, it was all impacted. So that carried forward into my sensibility in terms of how I was running my businesses and also how I consulted. So this program, The Soul of Business, is an invitation to the listener to explore what does it mean to actually be connected to that spirit? And then as a leader in a business, how do I actually leverage that connection so that my business becomes a force for good, not just a source of profit? So that's the uh, the preamble and the uh, raison d'etre, if you will, for why this program exists. And it's been my great joy and honor to be able to interview some fascinating people in, uh, in the pursuit of exploring this topic. And today's um, episode is no exception. Um, I came across uh, this woman uh, yeah, through some of the work that I do with an organization called the World Business Academy. And I am a, a, a board director on, on the academy and have been for a number of years. I'm also dean of education at the World of, uh, Business Academy. And I was talking with the founder, Ronaldo Brutico, who is a very good friend of mine, uh, about you know, different things. And he mentioned uh, this person's name. And I said, I have not come across her. And he said, well, how could you have not? She's a fellow in the business or in the, in the academy. And I said, I'd better do my homework. So I went in and started looking around and I was gobsmacked to take a bring, you know, British term here at, at what I discovered. Um, Elizabeth Sartoris is literally, I think, the uh, most impactful and influential evolutionary biologist of our time. And the, what's interesting about this particular interview for me is how she positions what she does from her background in terms of what the future of the world can be and what the future of humankind can be. She considers, um, and I was struck by this in her biography, that um, she's a deep pastist, what she, what she calls a pastist. And I need to be a deep pastist in order to be a good futurist. 
And she truly is a futurist in the truest sense of the word here. Yeah, knowing our human evolutionary trajectory helps us see the best options laying ahead in the world that works for all. Um, she has spoken on five continents, teaching living economies, which is what we're going to be talking about today, as well as how to navigate our perfect storm of crises. Uh, as you know, we start becoming more interconnected, uh, conflict is inevitable uh, in one sense, but how we deal with that you know, conflict is, is something that uh, we can actually address, and I think in a very generative fashion. Um, Elizabeth has post-doctoral degree at the American Museum of Natural History. She's taught at MIT, the University of Massachusetts. She's contributed to Nova's Horizon TV series. And as I mentioned, she's a fellow of the World Business Academy with an honorary chair in living economies. And she's also on the board of an interesting organization called Ethical Markets, which has been around for over 40 years. And I think it's worth touching on this. Uh, Ethical Markets' mission is to foster the evolution of capitalism beyond current models based on materialism, thereby maximizing self-interest and profit, competition and fear of scarcity. It's, it's about looking at a different way to use capitalism in a more generative way. You know, capitalism, in my experience, has gone off the rails. And that was part of the reason that I wrote the book, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. So I want to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Satoris to the show. I am thrilled and honored to have you here. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much, Blaine. It's my pleasure to be able to have this conversation with you. Well, um, I'd like to start off, and, and the conversation is what I'd like to have. Uh, you know, pretty much the format of this uh, show is not to be an interview style. It really is conversational. So uh, these conversations are generally sparked by questions. So I'll just ask a question that I was uh, curious about. Um, how does the spirit or soul, in my vernacular, how does a spirit or soul enter into conversation about businesses' roles or responsibility in creating living economies. How does that come to pass? What's, what's the role of spirit in this process from a business perspective? Yeah, well, it's a, that's a big question, Blaine. And um, wow, there are several ways I would approach this. One is that uh, we share the, the childhood in nature. Uh, the the recognition that everything is connected. And I remember that when I couldn't climb a tree high enough to get to a woodpecker I wanted to see, I, I could take my mind up to be with the woodpecker. Uh, I was able as a child to commune with things in nature, not just to communicate. And I make that distinction be between the way the cells in my body know what each other are doing. They know what the whole system is about. They know their role. And this is true of every ecosystem. But humans have told ourselves that we can't commune. We kind of stamp it out in children. <laughs> yes. And uh we, they can only communicate, and, and we teach them to put everything in the boxes of this is fact and this is fiction, right? And if, if you experience something and talk about it and it doesn't fit the, the social model, then you're, you're lying. You're, it's, your imagination has run away with you. You know, we try to stamp it out. 
Um, but I'm, I'm seeing this communion coming back in children and not being stamped out the way it used to be. And it's a birthright that we have. When we can commune with things, uh, I don't even want to call them things because that's an awful noun to use in a living economy, in a living sense. Um, but business has suffered from this same kind of proscription. We've set our businesses up as hierarchies and everybody's put into the boxes and this is what you do and this is what you do and here are your timelines and we have to be very, very efficient uh, so that we can maximize the, the products, the profits uh, from the products, right? Uh, so our, our, I used to think that businesses weren't even living systems and then I remembered, hey, they're made of people. They're made of people who are connected, interconnected. Their lives are interconnected, even though they're taught, leave your life at home. When you come into the business, you're in the business world, right? right. And you no. have all these tasks. So we lose the soul because the soul is in the communion, in the Perfect. interconnectedness. You know, you know, there's two pieces there, and yeah, communion and communication are two very distinct uh, activities. Um, and that being said, relationship, yeah, listeners to this uh, show have heard me say this before, but all any organization is, is a collection of individuals that are in relationship. And to the degree that all of these relationships are working well, the organization's probably going to function fairly healthily. And the, the uh, default for many people when they, when they hear me say that is the interpersonal relationships. Yeah. But there's relationships that I have with the rest of the system. There's relationships that I have with the goals and objectives, the work process. All of these things have uh, relationship dynamics to them. I have relationships with stakeholders. I have relationships with the abstract market. Um, and if I'm not attending to, and this is where communion comes in, I believe, if I'm not attending to the qualitative nature of those relationships, I'm missing incredible opportunities to be not only efficient, but effective in terms of being generative and life affirming rather than uh, pulling from the system without recompense, if, if that makes sense. Right. So the idea, the idea of communion um, in a business context, in a business conversation, uh, seems a little foreign, I think, to many business listeners. So how would you, how would you address that? You know, how would I be you know, positioned to have communion? <laughs> Not in a liturgical way, but uh, just, yeah, how, how does that work? Well, let, let's play with that a little bit. Um, I I've, uh, am a, an evolution biologist, as you said, but I am also was always interested in cosmologies and worldviews and recognizing that each of us has a worldview. I came to call them vistas because vista is made of two overlapping shorter words, vita and visa, right? You slide them together, you get the word vista. And vita means life and visa gets where you want to go, right? So if you want to look at the whole, our worldviews, are our collections of beliefs about ourselves, about our worlds, about relationships or not, about whether things are independent objects connected by actions, 
which uh, in our kind of language, the Indo-European languages are all made of nouns and verbs. Most indigenous languages are process languages that see everything in motion and in flow. And you're very connected in China, so you will also know that from the Taoist, the ancient Taoist perspective in China is everything is only relationship in flow, constantly mm -hmm. evolving. True. Uh, the yin-yang symbol is my favorite symbol. It shows the inward spiraling to me of gravitation and the outward spiraling of radiation uh, coming together like if you do it on a, in a donut and a, you rotate the donut on itself there's a there's a white hole on one side spitting out uh, the radiation and on the other side there's a black hole sucking it back in right mm -hmm. uh, the, the black, yeah. they're talking a lot in the news about black holes right now and they say anything that goes into a black hole can never come out but we know from Stephen Hawking and Nassim Haramein and all sorts of people that they do emit light that from the event horizon of a black hole the light is spewing forth uh, anyway I bring up Taoism because in the Taoist model, there is matter, there is energy, there is spirit. Mm -hmm. And they're all connected. They move in and out of each other. And all physicists, even Western physicists that have rather mechanical models, are agreeing nowadays with the quantum physicists that everything is vibration. So think of a keyboard where the Taoist matter is in the low keys. Mm -hmm. And then the is in the mid-range and Einstein showed us that matter and energy can be transposed up and down the keyboard they're really the same thing aren't they yes but but Western science gets stuck trying to derive the universe from the matter end because it insists that things have to be measurable to be real and it can only make measuring instruments out of matter so it gets stuck when it gets to energy it gets up to zero point energy we call it yeah now the Eastern philosophies like Taoism and Vedism uh, all start at the high end of the keyboard in cosmic consciousness. In Sir James Jean's comment, the, the universe is more like a great thought than a great machine. Uh, so they start in that realm of consciousness and thought, and by slowing down the vibrations, they get to energy and then transforming into matter. So we've been taught to, from Western science to look at business through Western science's model of evolution, which is only Darwinian competition, right? Yep. And so let me, let me hold, hold just a minute here. I'm going to put a pause because I've got a dog barking. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Maddie. Okay. <laughs> hold on. Oh, let, me, let me put her away here. I want to come back to this. My apologies, Elizabeth. Uh, my wife is usually... Problem. Uh, you gave us a glimpse of the picture behind you, which seems to be a Chinese painting of two figures. 
maybe yin yang, male oh. female. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, that's that a, that's an erte. Um, that yeah, is two dancers. Uh -huh. Kind of doing yeah. So right, but yeah. there's always the inward and the outward, right? And that's yes. where soul comes in. Um, so, so I, the, yeah, the Darwinian. Yeah, they've been built on this mechanical model, the hierarchy, putting people in boxes, chain of command, um, and and competition. Above all, that the only way to move ahead, and capitalism always wants to grow, right, is to, to compete more and more and more. <laughs> and now evolution biologists is showing us that new, com the, the uh, competition is like the early phase. That's how you get going. You establish territory in nature. Uh, you, you, you acquire enough territory and resources to grow your family to you know, establish yourself. But there comes a time for every species in nature when constantly having to beat off the competition <laughs> is going to use up so much energy that it's exhausting and, the, and it starts to fall apart. And then you discover that cooperation takes way less energy, that in the end you find it's cheaper to feed your enemies than to kill them off. And organizations like Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, which we started at the Social Venture Network uh, maybe 20 years ago at least, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is all about looking at the different businesses in the community, cooperating with each other, feeding each other. The waste of one may be the food of another. And then the soul comes in from the connectedness when you see, wow, the other businesses aren't necessarily my enemies. They can be my friends. And wow, what we can do together with each other. And so a lot of freedom comes out of the connections, putting the soul back through connections. I believe soul is really about this communion of connection. I could not agree more. I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, and what we experience as separation is actually just a manifestation of a single unity that takes different form. So the idea of communion is about reintegration in many ways. And I love the, the distinct in, distinction to make about energy allocation. It takes more energy to compete than it does to cooperate. I've never heard anybody actually put it that way before. And I love that distinction. That's beautiful. Well, I remember back in the Vietnam War, we used to say, why don't we just buy up Vietnam and develop it? It would be much cheaper than destroying it. And it's true. It costs more. But unfortunately, war is part of our capitalist system. And yep. we've made it very, very profitable. It's War and drugs are the most profitable industries on the planet. Uh, that is absolutely true, unfortunately, and it is. I mean, it's right back to the beginning when I said that you know, capitalism has gone off the rails. But if I go back to Adam Smith, mm. uh, right at the beginning, the, uh, the, the, the theory of moral uh, sentiment, you know, which informed his writing on the wealth of nations, was about the invisible hands, and it was about connection. It was about you know, reciprocal uh, and symbiotic work. And, and that was, you know, the, yeah. the genesis of trade uh, in, in, as far as a first yeah. writing of it. So that is a really interesting. It's an important observation. Yeah, let's, let's stay on that point for a while. Yes. Because we translated the invisible hand into something very, very different. 
we we translated it into no regulations. You know, there's an invisible hand running this, and it's all going to be okay if we're completely free to do whatever we want, right? Yes. <laughs> but nature, nature insists on a lot of responsibility with freedom. When our brains exploded to into the human form, we lost knowing what to do. Other creatures know what to do. They know how to find mates and how to govern themselves and form community and all those things. And we got this freedom. And then, you know, in the U.S., uh, the motto kind of became, don't fence me in. Don't make any rules for me. Mm -hmm. Whereas in other parts of the world, freedom is the freedom to accomplish things, knowing the constraints, knowing the responsibility that it takes to do things. Yes, and it's not a zero-sum process. Yeah, and you know what I mean by I mean there was a study, not a study, but there's a ranking that came out today in one of my news feeds, uh, looking at the happiest and healthiest and most uh, successful societies on the planet today. Finland again was number one, and um, not accidentally, their whole ethos. And I've spent a lot of time in Finland working when I was working with Nokia. Uh, and actually the author of one of the papers that I read today, uh, Jorma Olela, was the CEO of uh, Nokia at that time. Had some fascinating conversations with him. Um, but the idea there in the ethos of, of Finnish society is, is harmony, collaboration. Uh, it's not necessarily cutthroat competition. And they are exquisitely, I mean truly, you know, quite quite good from an economic perspective at you know, working in, in the world. But they have in many ways, a living economy that is looking for how can all benefit, not just a select 1%, how can all benefit? And that notion of the invisible hand, there are you know, regulations, there are laws, there are things that need to be attended to that are designed not to be onerous, not to be limiting, you know, you know to an extreme, but are designed to foster well-being. And that, I think, yes. is generated when we start touching into what's the soul of business about. Business has a responsibility uh, to take care of the whole, I think. Huge. The best, the best opportunity and the biggest responsibility. It is, in fact, the only thing that can save us. <laughs> I believe that's right. It, it, it's through business is how we manage our affairs on the planet. And nature's been doing business for billions of years. What is, a, what is business? It's about uh, acquiring resources and transforming them to something useful or edible and then distributing them and consuming them and in nature, recycling them. And unfortunately, uh, part of Western science has been a linear model Mm -hmm. And I don't mean a cradle-to-grave cradle model, <laughs> but a linear one where it's from acquisition to tossing out. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't complete a loop where recycling comes back into the process. Yeah. As, our as industrial, our, our heavy industry wastes over 96% of what it takes out of the ground, becomes slag heaps and, you know, throw away. And then the metal that we get from it, or what, what, what's in the 4%, ends up in landfills somewhat later. Uh, you know, there's, that's, a, that's not the way nature does a living economy. <laughs> 
No. So um, that living economy meme, uh, how would you, in a, in a simple sentence or a simple uh, 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 capture point here, describe what you mean by a living economy for those that are listening so that they've got a real good grasp of what this is about? Uh, when you learn from nature, as, as obviously all indigenous societies were, were so, in, so obviously and recognizable to themselves, part of nature, in nature, we've tended to separate ourselves, to think of ourselves as living in an environment, which we see as a collection of resources for human use, rather than as one participant species in what uncountable numbers of species are doing and for instance in your in your body if you tried to do business the way we do in your body you'd maybe call the the heart lung system the northern industrial organs north of the diaphragm and and then the rest of the body uh, in the bones there are raw material blood cells uh, that that can be mined and so let's say the northern industrial organs have the power to mine them. And in your body, actually, those raw material blood cells do come up to what I'm calling the northern industrial organ because the blood there adds oxygen and refines things and then distributes it to the whole body. But if we did it our way, then the body price for blood would be announced from those northern industrial organs. And only the organ, the other parts of the body that could afford it could have the blood. And you see very quickly, you could teach a six-year-old that, that what we're doing is not a living economy. Mm -hmm. It isn't recycling, it isn't distributing fairly, uh, you know, it isn't benefiting everything that participates. And our stakeholders are not only all humanity, as Tachi Kiyuchi pointed out when he yeah. was uh, CEO of Mitsubishi America, and he's a good friend of mine who used to bring me to Japan to talk uh, to business people. Um, you know, he pointed out that ultimately all other humans are your stakeholders. And I would add all other species are your stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Everyone your business affects, right? Yes. So, uh, so getting soul back, communing in, recognizing that we're not in an environment, we're part of an ecosystem. And that ecosystem ends up being the whole planet and the, perhaps the whole galaxy and universe. There you go. So uh, in a living economy, you learn from nature. You learn. We have this wonderful movement of biomimicry now that Janine Benyus got off the ground, uh, where people are looking, at least in the business world, to make sensible materials that are natural and, and recyclable, mm -hmm. rather than clogging our planet with plastics. Uh, and um, I, I won't... <laughs> go into a river. <laughs> we can go down a very deep we're rabbit hole on that one too. We're we're killing off our life support systems, yeah, right? Truly. And, and then we think we can solve it all with technology. Oh, we'll just make spaceships and go live somewhere else. Not so easily done. Right? Who I am will follow me wherever I go. So if I don't get it fixed here, wherever I go, I'm going to replicate it. It's, that's a, so that's a the, the little body economics model is helpful in seeing the difference between a living economy and an artificially constructed economy that's linear. So the first thing to make a living system happen is to 
delinearize your business economy to make sure that there is a, a uh, cradle to grave repeating cycle mm -hmm. uh, where you, you reuse even what's in the grave. Right? <laughs> yeah, perfect. On that, I think that we are approaching our time limit here. So I, I could carry this conversation on. Uh, I would love to have you come back if you are open to that possibility. Uh, I'd, so. I'd be happy to. And I'd say everyone who wants to make a better world, find what makes your heart sing and, and work from there so that you become an attractor, whether you're a poet or a gardener or a scientist or whatever. Become an attractor, gather more people to you, build local living economies and recognize that nature operates on the same principles at all scales. So as an indigenous woman said to me once, anyone who knows how to run a household knows how to run a world. <laughs> I love that, I love that. How can people find out more about you and uh, your, your work with living economies? Is there a place that you can direct oh, them? Yeah. Well, my, my basic main book is called Earth Dance, uh, Living Systems in Evolution. I have a newer, easier one out called Gaia's Dance, The Story of Earth and Us, a children's book for grownups. <laughs> and uh, you, can, you can find me Googling my name. There are lots of videos and things out there. Okay. And I will have uh, some of her information posted on the synopsis uh, when I make this uh, podcast available. So I, I want to thank again, Dr. Elizabeth Satoris. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the show today. And I look forward to our next meeting. This has been thank Blake so Bartlett. Much. Yes. Uh, the Soul of Business. I want to thank you for listening. Um, you can find out more about The Soul of Business by going to my website, blainebartlett.com. Uh, the podcast is available at all of the regular places, uh, iTunes, Spotify, and whatnot. Uh, the video portion of uh, this podcast is also available on my YouTube channel, uh, Blaine Bartlett, uh, YouTube you know, slash Blaine Bartlett. And look forward to comments. I look forward to hearing from you. And again, Dr. Elizabeth Satoris, thank you very much for being my guest. You're most welcome. <laughs> This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.